Let's pray together. Lord, all your word is powerful and profitable for changing us and making us more what you want us to be. But somehow, Lord, as I approach this passage, I tremble because I feel like this is especially significant. So I pray that as we look into your word together, that you would use it to change us, that our eyes would be opened to how great our salvation really is. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I fairly often talk to believers who are struggling in their walks with the Lord. And part of that struggle is that they feel like perhaps something's wrong that they believe in Jesus, they came to faith, but they don't feel like things are that much different for them. They still struggle with doubts. They still struggle with sin. And they still experience the same circumstances that they did before. They still suffer. They still have difficulties in their lives. So they begin to question, where is God? What's really changed for me? Is this Christianity stuff really real? Or is it not? Is he really in my life? Maybe I'm not even a Christian. Or maybe I'm just stuck being a carnal Christian for my life. Now, I think most of us struggle with those questions at some point. But the problem may be that we're looking for the wrong thing. We're looking for some kind of feeling or we're looking for some immediate change in our behavior or we're looking for some change, dramatic change in our circumstances. Now, God can and He does do dramatic things in our lives at times but he doesn't always. He can free us from long-term addictions or do something dramatic, but again, so often, he doesn't choose to. We feel like God ought to make everything different if he's in our lives. But we don't see that, so we struggle. What is different, we think? Well, apparently, Paul felt like that was a concern of the Romans, too, because he addresses that in our passage today. That's Paul's focus in Romans 5, 1 through 11. And in fact, he is so excited about what he has to share, he can hardly stand it. He's so excited at talking about the results of our justification, our being declared not guilty before God, that he wants to share that with us. So that's what we'll be looking at today as we look at some key results of our salvation, some key results of being declared not guilty before God. It talks about two main things, a new relationship with God and a redirected heart. So let's look together in Romans 5, 1 through 11. He begins this way. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, That's what he's been talking about in the last couple of chapters. 
being justified, being declared righteous, being declared not guilty before God. We are finally right with Him. Since we have been justified through faith, we have, we have something. (laughs) There's results in our lives, and He says this is perhaps most important. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. What does this mean? Now, in our Freudian psychological age, (laughs) we think of peace and we think of a feeling immediately, it seems like. Uh, Peace, a feeling of peace, a feeling of everything being well. But that's not really what Paul is talking about here. What he's talking about is a different kind of peace, the kind of peace that says there's no more war, no more hostility, no more battle going on. It's an objective reality outside of us. And if you think about what happened with the fall, where Adam and Eve rebelled against God, we all have decided to go our own way, and therefore we're separated from God What he's talking about here, that we have peace with God, is incredibly dramatic because it means a reversal of the fall. It means being brought back into a relationship with God. That there is no more chasm between us. That we are finally at peace with God. You see, a holy God loved us. But he couldn't be with us because of our rejection of him and because he is holy and we are sinful. We were separated from him. We had a sinfulness in us, part of us, that God could not tolerate. My wife has a disease called celiac disease. It means she has an intolerance to gluten, to wheat and rye and spelt and other grains. If she has contact with those, she gets sick. Many of you have allergies. If you have contact with certain things, it makes you ill. That's a bit of a picture of how God is with sin and sinful people. It's not that he doesn't love us. It's clear that he does. He so loved the world, he sent his son. But he has an intolerance of sin. He cannot be around it. But faith in Jesus changed everything. You see, when you come to him in faith and say, I believe you died for me, his blood covers us. We are declared righteous. God looks at us and sees Christ in his perfection that we could never measure up to. And the hostility is gone. We're no longer at war. He carried our sins so God can look at us and be in relationship with us. So he's really talking about like, Two warring countries that are at war and they finally negotiate a peace. There is no more hostility. But that's not a perfect example because because you think about those two countries and they're still going to be watching each other. (laughs) And if one of them violates the agreement, then they're going to be at war again. So there's this wariness, there's this sense of, Uh, It's a negotiated peace. We're at peace. We're not fighting, but you better keep your act together. And too often, that's the way we think of our relationship with God. 
Oh yeah, I'm at peace with you, but you better keep your act together. (laughs) But Paul goes on in verse 2 to explain it's far more than that to be at peace with God. In fact, the word peace in the Greek world had this sense of no more hostility, but Paul is really expanding on it to show it's really more of that Hebrew Old Testament sense of peace. Shalom, well-being, not just no war, but this is awesome. (laughs) He says this in verse 2, through whom we have gained access by faith through Jesus into this grace in which we now stand. He says we stand in a position of favor with God. Here's where it gets exciting, see? God is not saying, okay, I'm just not going to attack you anymore. I'm not against you. It's far more than that. It's God saying, you know what? Now that the barrier's removed, I'm the king, and I'm inviting you into my palace, and I'm inviting you in to be my son, my daughter, and I will give you all the rights and privileges of being part of my family. That's shalom. (laughs) It's not just we're not at war. It's that now I can bless you richly because I love you so much. I've always loved you, but now I get to show it. (laughs) It's most favored nation status. (laughs) It's far more than just not being at war. You see, when he says we have peace with God... He's saying the God of the universe who created everything will now favor us and use all his resources to bless us, to bring us shalom. We can be in a relationship with him through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. This is a reversal of the fall. This is the kingdom has come to our lives, and we have a restored, reconciled relationship with the God of the universe. You see how incredible peace with God is? It's what we were created for, and we lost in the fall, but it's now been restored. When you put your faith in Jesus and you receive the not guilty declaration before the throne. Now, if that was all that God brought us, that would be enough, I think. That would be fabulous. (laughs) But Paul goes on to talk about so much more. He talks about a redirected heart. Now, let's talk a little bit about our hearts as unbelievers. We are all made to have relationship with God, but because it's not there, for an unbeliever, for each of us before Christ. We have this huge heart that is meant to be filled by God himself. And therefore, every human being is driven to somehow fill that, give us to, to find a sense of worth, a sense of significance, a sense of, of identity, a sense of value. And there are three primary areas that we try to get that from. One is our accomplishments. If I can just achieve something, then maybe I can feel okay about myself. So we work 
hard to achieve, to try to accomplish something in our work and our families. If my kids just turn out great, then I'll be okay. If, if I can just succeed at my job and make enough money or whatever, then I'll be okay. But even if we are incredibly successful, it can only fill this much of our hearts. <laughs> and there's so much more. Or we try to get our worth from what we have. If I just had more possessions, you know that drive. Sometimes you just feel like, I just need to go, wow, if I just had this. And advertisers love to stir that up in us. If you just had this, you would be okay. You'd be valuable. You'd be worthwhile. And yet that can't really fill our hearts either. Or we try to get our worth from who we know, what group we belong to, if we belong to the right group, even the right church or the right Bible study or the right people at work, you know, or the right people at school, the right clique or whatever. If I just know significant people, maybe I can feel significant too. But that can't fill our hearts either. So as unbelievers, we're walking around with a huge empty heart that we're scrambling to try to fill. But once we have peace with God, you see, (laughs) your heart gets filled because you are restored to a relationship with the God of the universe. The infinite creator of all says, I love you and I am coming to dwell inside you and fill your life with me. Shalom. All of a sudden, our hearts begin to get redirected in a new direction. We're freed from those chains to try to fill it ourselves. And then he says, as a result, there's three marvelous things that happen. Notice at the end of verse 2, he says, and, okay, we have peace with God, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. And then down in verse 11, not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God. Paul focuses on a word, and this is the breakdown of the passage. These three exact same words, rejoice, sometimes in New American Standard, for example, it's translated exult. Other translations, boast. It's not really rejoice quite. It's a hard word to define. It's a word that really describes the direction of your heart. What are you looking to for worth? What are you boasting in? What do you look to for your sense of value, of significance? What gives you value in life? And so he says, once you come to Christ, your heart gets redirected, and there's three things that you begin to draw your value from because you're free of the things that you were trying to find it from before. Number one, at the end of verse two, he says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. We exult, we draw our worth from the hope of the glory of God. You see, rather than what we accomplish, we begin to get a sense of value, a sense of worth from what we are becoming. The hope of the glory of God. What does that phrase mean? Well, remember back in 323, you probably memorized it, many of you, at some point. For all have sinned and fall short of 
the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It's Christ-likeness. And in our sinfulness, we fall short. But again, here's the reversal of the fall. Our hope is in the glory of God. Our hope is that one day, when we see Jesus face to face, we will be glorious like him. We will be fully righteous. Now, we still are in this in-between state now. We're declared righteous, but we still struggle with sin. But one day, our hope is that we will be like him. You see what kind of significance and value and worth that gives you? I'm going to be like Jesus. He'll still be Lord. I won't be Lord. I won't be God. (laughs) But character-wise, I will be like him. All the sin and foolishness I still struggle with will be washed away and we will be pure like all we've always longed for all our lives. You see how this gives you hope and how this gives you value and worth in a world that's so uncertain? Someday I'm going to be there. It's as if God has come to you and said, it's basketball season, okay? It's as if God came to you and said, you are going to be as good a basketball player as Michael Jordan at his prime. And you go, I can barely dribble. (laughs) He says, but it's promised you will get there. You see, that would motivate you, I think, to want to work hard because you know you're going to get there. You're freed up to do your best and try, but there isn't this uncertainty about, am I ever going to get there? It's a promise that you will get there. It's a hope in the glory of God, and that gives you a great sense of worth. (laughs) I'm going to be as good as Michael Jordan. (laughs) I'm going to be like Jesus someday. Oh, I know you don't see it all yet, (laughs) but I'm going to be like Jesus someday. You see how that gives you worth? That sure, confident hope that he's promised that our destiny is to become like him. God promises to get us there. He'll accomplish it. And therefore, it makes me want to thank him and want to cooperate with him in the process. So we begin to draw our worth from the hope of the glory of God. I'm going to be like Jesus someday. The second thing he says you begin to rejoice in, exult in, boast in, get your worth from, is our sufferings. Notice verse 3. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Now, wait a minute, Paul. (laughs) That's going a little too far. (laughs) I'm going to feel significant and worthwhile and valuable because of my sufferings? That doesn't make sense to me. What are you trying to say? Well, he tells us. Not because our sufferings feel good, but because, he says, of what we know our sufferings are producing in us. That very Christ-likeness that we long to have fruitful in our lives. Notice what he says. We rejoice in our sufferings Because we know some things. First of all, we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, 
hope. Let's talk a little bit about these sufferings. What's he talking about here? If we're going to rejoice in our sufferings, we better know what they are. Well, very simply, (laughs) suffering, the word here, means anything that causes you pain. It could be difficult circumstances. It could be health issues. It could be a difficult relationship. It could be persecution as a Christian. It could be financial troubles. All that this world squeezes us into, and it has this picture of being squeezed by life. And it hurts. That's sufferings. But notice what he says. The reason we can begin to draw worth and value and rejoice in our sufferings, in our tribulations, is because of what God is doing in us through them. He's transforming us through them. He says, first of all, the tribulations, the sufferings, produce perseverance or endurance. The Greek word is hupomone, which means to remain under. Remain under the pressure. <laughs> to not squirt out and escape. You see, when you undergo trials, you think, I could never endure that, but you get under the trials and God is with you. He gives you the strength and the pressure comes and it gets worse and worse, but you find you are able to endure. You see, the trials produce endurance in your life. Hupomone, the ability to remain under in the midst of it when we don't squirt out from underneath it. (laughs) You see, our culture teaches us that trials are bad, suffering is bad, and you need to run from it and get out from under it as quickly as you can. But when you realize that God is doing something incredible through it, then you learn to endure and stay under the pressure. So the trials, the suffering, produces endurance in us, and that endurance, it says, produces character or proven character. The word there is the word dakame, the Greek word that used to be stamped, we have many examples of this, on the bottom of a pot after it had been through the fire, and the glaze and all had been heated. And it would come out and they would stamp on the bottom, Dakame, proven character. It made it. That's what God is producing in us. <laughs> Dakame, proven character, character, Christ-likeness. We begin to say, thank you, Lord. I don't like pain, but I rejoice in my sufferings because you're producing Dakame proven character in me. What's he talking about? Fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all those things. They're to the fruit of the Spirit. You see that the pressure comes, the tribulation comes, and we get squeezed by that, but we endure underneath it. And the pressure gets harder and harder and suddenly we begin to get transformed like, like coal, carbon that gets squeezed under the pressure of the earth and it gets pressured more and more and it begins to be transformed 
from coal into diamonds. Something of incredible value. And so all of a sudden we go, wow, Lord, I rejoice. I get worth from my tribulations, my suffering, because I know you're using it to change me into something really glorious and beautiful. I don't like the pain, but I thank you for what you're producing in me that gives me true value and worth. Thank you that you love me enough to produce this kind of fruit, proven character, dakime, in me. And then it says, tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance character, character, hope. You see, we look at our lives as we see our lives beginning to change, knowing that we couldn't have changed ourselves, but God is transforming us through the struggles we go through. We get hope because we see God at work in our lives changing us, and we get confidence that He will continue working in our lives, and that gives us greater hope that we are going to make it. (laughs) It's like buying an old house that needs to be restored and you put in work and you, and you, you remodel one room and you go, that's great. There's a lot more to do. <laughs> but that gives me hope that I'm actually going to get there. And I'll do another room and another room and another room. And as we see our lives beginning to change through the tribulations we face, God is at work. It gives us hope that He will get us to that place of Christ-likeness that we were created for. We get more and more hopeful in life. I'm going to be finished one day. I'm making progress thanks to the Lord's work in me. A friend I was talking to just last week, and he, he was describing the last few years and how difficult they have been. And how painful it's been for his family. And he's had legal issues and all kinds of things. But he said, it's been terrible. It's been hard. But I would not trade it away. Because of what God has done in my life through it. That's rejoicing in your tribulations. That's this sense of, God, thank you. Thank you that you are transforming me through the struggle. But you know, all this can raise a question. And the question is this. How can I know that this hope I'm putting, that God's going to get me there, won't be disappointed? How do I know that God's going to finish the job? How do I know he won't give up on me? Because you know what? Reality is, I struggle. I still struggle with sin. I'm not always obedient. I don't always do the right thing. How do I know that God will see me through? We need, if we're really going to have hope, we need to know that God will finish the job. And that's what Paul goes on to explain now, where we can get that kind of confidence. It's important because if we look at our circumstances and how our life goes and the things we experience, we can't really tell from those that God loves us, can we? (laughs) 
Because believers, we experience the same struggles as other people. And the world's a hard place. So circumstances won't give us proof of God's love. And neither will looking at us and how obedient we are or how good we are or whatever. Because if that's what it's dependent on, we are in big trouble. So I can't look at that to determine whether God's going to continue loving me. So how can we have confidence that God's love is always going to be there and he will finish the job? Well, he goes on to give us two encouragements. First, there's an internal way that we can know God loves us. Verse 5. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. This is an internal way that we can know God loves us. It's through the Holy Spirit poured into our lives. Now, the Holy Spirit's changing us and all, but I think what he's talking about here is that every believer, when you receive Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. He begins to indwell you. And one of his primary tasks is to remind you, to help you understand the deepest level of who you are, that God loves you. We don't always believe that. We, it's a still, small voice, and sometimes we listen to other things other than that. But internally, the Holy Spirit is always reminding us, God loves you. He's for you. He will never let you go. So there's this internal reality, and I think if we're honest and we really listen, it's there. He helps us remember, I died for you, I love you, I'm for you. And he wants us to listen, to hear. That's the internal way that he reminds us that he loves us, but there's an external way too, that even no matter how we feel, and if we can't hear the voice of the Spirit, we can always know that God loves us and will love us to the end, and that is the cross, the cross of Christ. And he goes on to talk about that now. He says, verse 6, You see, at just the right time, at the right time in history, at the center point of all history, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now listen to his argument. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God, <laughs> but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't righteous, we weren't good, but he died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? What's his argument here? Paul is essentially saying the cross proves forever that God loves us and is for us and will see us to the very end. He will hold on to us forever. He will never let us go. He will never abandon us. Notice what he says. He says, pay attention. <laughs> Verse 6. Notice how he describes us. We were powerless. 
We were ungodly. Verse 8, while we were still sinners. Verse 10, for if when we were God's enemies, when we were absolutely powerless, couldn't do anything for ourselves, couldn't do anything right, when we were ungodly, which meant rejecting God, didn't care about God, neglecting God, when we were sinners, going our own way, when we were enemies of God, God looked at us in that state and said, I love you so much, I'm going to send my son to die for you and to give you life. And so Paul says, well, how much more now that you're his child does God love you? And how much more will he make sure that you end up getting eternal life, that you end up reaching your destiny of Christ-likeness? Of course he's going to finish the job. He did the harder part. Of course he's going to finish it. A picture that I've used before that's been helpful to me is it's like someone's out in the ocean and they're drowning. And someone struggles to get there in the boat and then they dive into the water and they wrestle with them and they're fighting them because they don't understand and they're drowning and they're fighting and yet the rescuer comes and and overcomes that and finally is able to calm them down and drag them to the boat and get them on the boat and they start heading back to shore. Now imagine if that person who just got rescued suddenly began to be terrified and think, oh no, what if they're not going to finish the job? What if they throw me overboard? Now isn't that absurd thinking? And yet don't we think that way with God all the time? You've done the greater thing, God, but gee, what if you don't, now that I'm your child and I'm in your palace and you love me and you're proving your love to me every day, what if you let me fail so badly that I am out of your kingdom? What if I lose my salvation? What? And Paul's saying that is absurd thinking. God is going to get you there. You can't sin enough to lose his love. This is what theologians call assurance of salvation, perseverance of the saints. God's love is so great, Paul says. Of course he will finish the job. Of course he loves you enough to see that you get there. God's point is, Paul's point is, he will finish saving you. He says we will be saved by his life. Scriptures talk about we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. It's a process. And he says here, God will finish the process, and we can trust in his love. So here's the point. We can relax and enjoy our relationship with God. (laughs) Because it's a certain thing that he'll get us where we need to be like Christ. Yeah, it'll take trials, it'll take suffering, it'll take difficulty, but He will get us there because He loves us so much. I like what Vern Lind, who was, as we were studying this passage in our elder meeting this week, said this, the value of the gift confirms the magnitude of the love. The value of the gift confirms the magnitude of the love. And it also confirms our value. If God would give so much, he values us 
so much. If he'd give his own son, give his own life for us, he values us so much that he wants us to relax and enjoy the relationship. And that's verse 11. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice, we exult, we get worth from God. (laughs) Our relationship with him. And that's the third step of a redirected heart. We, We begin to realize how marvelous God is. That God is making me like Jesus. That my suffering is being used by Him to produce life and Christ-likeness. And I can never be separated from His love, no matter what. I can never be lost from His hand. Then God begins to be your greatest joy. I have tasted of that. Just taste it. I hope you have where you begin to delight in just who he is and his love for you. And just being with him is your greatest joy. You see, that's where God is redirecting our hearts when he frees us up from trying to find life from what the world offers. He, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit become our joy and our life. All of us struggle at times with uh, what's really changed since I came to Christ. Is this real? And Paul says, oh yeah, it's real. Maybe not in the way you've been looking for it. But you have shalom with God. You're in a place of favor with Him. And your heart's being redirected to begin to rejoice in your destiny of Christ-likeness, in even your trials because they're producing that Christ-likeness and ultimately finding joy in God Himself. You have a new relationship with Him, a new life in Him. The kingdom has come. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus for giving your life for us so that we would know absolutely that you love us. Help us to walk in this new relationship with you, Father, this shalom, to be free from trying to fill our hearts ourselves, but to simply enjoy what you have accomplished in us and for us. So thank you. We celebrate you. We celebrate how great you are and how great is your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray all these things.